0: Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Cato Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Pat Reynolds is a restoration ecologist with more than 30 years of professional experience in the design, implementation, and monitoring of habitat restoration projects, including the effective use of native seed. He is the director of River Partners' Native Seed and Plant Program, and the general manager of Heritage Growers' Native Plant and Seed Supply. This week, we continue our series exploring conservation and biodiversity support at the foundational level of seed in conversation with Pat. The high-quality habitat seed sourcing, grow-out, and distribution to restoration projects, often in collaboration with their sibling endeavor, River Partners, is a model in getting source-identified seed for the right places in the face of ever-increasing urgency for restoration, but also increasing hope as to the impact of good, high-quality restoration. Pat, you and I have worked together before on a conservation presentation, and I am so pleased to welcome you here to Cultivating
1: Place. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. This is a a great opportunity to talk about native seed and habitat restoration.
0: I would love to have you introduce yourself to listeners a little more personally. How do you introduce yourself? And perhaps in that, include what the role of plants is in your life right now.
1: Sure. Yeah. No, I, I uh, describe myself as the general manager of, of Heritage Growers. You know, we're a, it's a brand new native seed and plant supply company where we're growing out native seed of known genetic origin for habitat restoration. And uh, yeah, for me, plants play a really important part of my life, um, both personally and professionally. You know, I'm constantly working in my native habitat garden at home and then, of course, at Heritage Growers. So I'm constantly working on ways to produce these seeds and these plants for habitat restoration. So so native vegetation uh, is a really important part of my life.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, in your work as uh, the general manager of Heritage Growers, and as you say, it's a, a native plant seed supply company or endeavor. Before we get into all that that entails, I would love to have you first take us back a little bit, Pat. Tell us a little bit more about where you were born and raised and who the people and places and plants were that led you to being a person for whom this would not only be a livelihood, but as listeners will hear, it will be a calling and a passion in your life and your work life as well.
1: So I grew up in a town called West Sacramento, which is uh, just on the other side of the river uh, from Sacramento in Yolo County. And where I grew up, actually, it was in an area that had this magnificent grove of valley oaks. Hmm. Uh, essentially, the uh, the houses were uh, built around these gigantic, beautiful trees. And from that, I developed this fascination for valley oak. Uh, it really sort of had this very strong pull for me. And I ended up actually, uh, because of that, uh, going to graduate school and studying valley oak at uh, Humboldt State University. And at the time, uh, and and still today, one of the issues with Valley Oak is that it's not necessarily regenerating well enough to replace the current stand densities. And so there was a lot of work going on with habitat restoration. And that sort of got me into the habitat restoration field. I ended up doing a a research project uh, at the Cosumnes River Preserve, which is a, a nature conservancy preserve, a little bit south of Sacramento. It's a it's the best example of Great Valley Valley Oak riparian forest, and uh, at the time, uh, the Nature Conservancy was was basically doing cutting edge work on figuring out how to restore this habitat. And so, I I ended up being a, a restoration intern there, where I I did my master's thesis research, and that sort of got me was that really initial work that got me into habitat restoration and. And at the time, uh, my boss there was a guy named Tom Griggs. So Tom was, uh, he was the Nature Conservancy's uh, restoration ecologist at the time. And if you know Tom, he's a very, very smart individual and, and uh, very engaging. And, and, he, tur- and he, he taught me a lot. And, and from that, that really sort of helped me, set me on my trajectory to become a restoration ecologist.
0: So one of the things I'd love to unpack there is you talked about this discrepancy between the existing stands of Valley Oak and the diminishing recruitment in those ecosystems. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be the case and what were some of the the gaps that you were able to then work with for this restoration and improvement of this cycle?
1: Well, there's a lot of factors that are potentially at play with uh, stand recruitment for, for Valley Oak. Uh, one of the things that we know is the uh, native grasslands that used to um, occur throughout California, those have been largely replaced by non-native annual grasslands. And, and the non-native annual grasslands, they tend to take water out of the soil much differently than the native grasses, they'll they'll essentially use up that water much sooner in the season, and they think that has an impact potentially on uh, the basically the survivorship of seedlings. But there are other things also. You know, there are things like uh, cattle grazing, which uh, have a potential impact as well as you could imagine. Um, uh, but but there there are other ideas as well. Um, for example, there's some thoughts that maybe valley oak. Uh, and other oaks they will regenerate in pulses and so that's a time when uh, things like a large mast year a time when uh, uh, there are a significant acorn crop might occur also during a time when there's a very wet uh, wet year and perhaps at a time when um, small mammals have uh, taken a dive and you put all of those kinds of things together and you can end up having this pulse of regeneration that occurs that that perhaps through time that, uh these oaks are regenerating you know uh in pulses as opposed to you know uh a few oaks that get established year after year so it's it's really a it's not really necessarily one thing it's a it's a constellation of factors that are impacting uh valley's ability to to regenerate um, and so that, that leads folks to figuring out, well, what is it can we do to restore these habitats to improve regeneration so that, you know, we have valley oak in perpetuity? And, and so um, so a lot of that work, well, my work involved uh, looking at different uh, types of irrigation regimes, uh, as well as weed control measures to figure out what might be the best solution for trying to restore valley oak riparian forest.
0: Right. And I, I asked that question because, the idea of being a native seed grower means if you're going to be successful, um, especially for large scale, is you need to be a native plant seed aficionado in in so many ways that that there is a lot of intricacy to how our plants are producing seed, when they're producing seed, what precludes that seed germinating successfully and or their seedlings uh, continuing successfully. And all of this overlay comes into play in in what you are on the ground learning at this point in your life as a young intern and getting started. And then becomes really important knowledge as you get deeper and deeper into your career. Um, and I think that Valley Oak uh, is a great illustration of how every single plant, uh, for the most part, every single species has its own set of um, understandings that you need to be aware of when you go into the complexity of restoring an entire ecosystem or trying to grow seed in order to do such a thing. So keep us going on this trajectory. You move on into your your full career line where do you go
1: yeah so from there after i'd completed my master's thesis and my internship for the nature conservancy um at the time which was the early 1990s uh there were very few individuals that knew much about habitat restoration very much a new science and so um that qualified me as a restoration ecologist and then i ended up uh getting a job uh, for an ecological consulting firm called H.T. Harvey Associates, where I spent the next 25 years uh, designing habitat restoration projects, uh, working with restoration contractors to build the restoration projects, monitoring the vegetation development, even managing the the long-term conservation sites uh, through this this entire process. So, uh, So by doing my early work there at the the Cosumnes River Preserve, uh, it set me up to, to become a restoration ecologist for those next 25 years.
0: And can you give us an example of one of those projects and kind of the, the scope of it? Because I think, you know, we, we use the term restoration ecology and it's kind of, um, especially, you know, as a whole 20 years of your life, it's kind of a bloodless, uh, description of what you were actually doing and i'd love to have people be able to visualize one of the projects and the breadth of plant life that you were able to help recover or you know become stable or whatever it was
1: yeah uh so one of the the largest projects that i worked worked on was in dublin california mm-hmm. and um it actually was a whole series of different habitat restoration projects uh where we would do things like uh, restore a creek to provide breeding habitat for California red-legged frog. Or we would create breeding ponds for California tiger salamander. Or we would go and create large seasonal wetland complexes that provide habitat for lots of different organisms. Or we would create riparian habitat within areas that were degraded or in areas that had been filled with concrete and, and debris, we would remove that material rebuild the channel, and then layer on native vegetation on top of it. And that work was done with a team of folks, right? We would have uh, hydrologic engineers and landscape architects and civil engineers uh, that would all work together to develop the plans and specifications and actually construct these and then monitor these in perpetuity. So uh, habitat restoration is actually a a really interesting uh, field in that it essentially uh, takes a, a lot of different expertise that needs to come together to figure out how to make these habitat types. So for example, when we were figuring out how to make breeding habitat for California red-legged frogs and California tiger salamanders, we were working with uh, herpetologists folks mm. that work with, uh, with, with frogs and salamanders, for example, um, and basically figuring out what the life cycle requirements were. Mm. So we would, we would, for example, figure out, oh, okay, what's the depth and duration of ponding that was necessary for a California tiger salamander to, to successfully breed. And then from that, we would then work with the hydrologist to configure the pond so that the, based upon the watershed that was present uh, and the size of the pond, we would figure out the depth of that pond. And from that, we could make a prediction about what would we need to do to configure that particular pond to provide habitat for a for California uh, tiger salamander. Mm. So it was a, it. kind of a, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Kind of an iterative process, you know, kind of going back and forth where the, where the herpetologist is talking to the restoration ecologist, who's then talking to the engineer, who's then talking to the, the hydrologist and sort of working together to, to come up with what's necessary to, to create these habitat areas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So were there specific plants that were correlated with that habitat in that pooling depth That worked for the the salamanders to, you know, either hide in or move around, or so they didn't take over the the pooling area where the the tiger salamanders would be.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are a lot of nuances associated with that. So one of the things that's really important for uh, California tiger salamanders they they have to have access to uh, be able to get in and outside of these ponds, Mm -hmm. and at the same time uh, they have to have some vegetation in order to. their eggs to be attached to and so Mm -hmm. part of our long-term management for that included putting uh, cattle fencing right through the middle of the pond so part of the pond would have wetland vegetation and then part of the pond would have would basically be free of vegetation and the other part of that too would be by allowing cattle to access these ponds they would muddy the waters and by muddying the waters you'd end up uh it would be much more difficult for predators to eat the larvae of these Mm. salamanders and these frogs. So a lot of sort of nuance with figuring out the way to optimize these habitat areas.
0: This is Cultivating Place, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Pat Reynolds is a career restoration ecologist and the general manager of Heritage Growers, a source-identified restoration seed growing and supply company. He is also the director of the Native Seed and Plants Program for the nonprofit restoration organization, River Partners. We'll be back for more, stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Cato Shaw Foundation. The Cato Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. I am so excited to announce and share more in this exact series on native seed about the fact that at the Garden Conservancy's Garden Futures Summit at the New York Botanical Garden this coming September 28th and 29th, one of the lead speakers will be the United Kingdom's Isabella Tree. She is the author of the best-selling Wilding, and more recently, The Book of Wilding, A Practical Guide to Rewilding Big and Small. This book was in many ways the beginning of the rewilding movement, and it does not disappoint in its story or its mission to help regrow our gardens better. I cannot wait to hear her speak at the conference where I will be leading a session on communities and gardens. But if you can't make the conference, you just might be in luck because right after the Garden Futures Summit, Isabella Tree is also the Garden Conservancy's fall national tour speaker. Check out gardenconservancy.org forward slash national speaking tour for all of the places and dates where you might be able to hear Isabella Tree as well. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of the things I love in this conversation with Pat is the focus of his work and his passions on concepts like high value habitat, dynamic, heterogeneous, and unpredictable. All of these are great characteristics in seed, in habitat, in life. In fact, they are great characteristics of life itself. In the best of our gardens and out. Pat Reynolds is a career restoration ecologist and general manager of Heritage Growers, a source-identified restoration seed and plant supply company. As we come back, Pat is sharing more about his educational and work pathway leading to his current focus on growing source-identified native seed for scale restoration.
1: Well, what I used to do is, uh, as part of training as a restoration ecologist, I would go out to uh, an event every year called Field Day uh, at Hedgerow Farms. And that was an event that was put on by the California Native Grassland Association in cooperation with Hedgerow Farms. And it was a, a day to go out and tour the, the seed amplification fields out at Hedgerow Farms and to learn about the, the latest information that was going on with grassland habitat restoration. And so with that, you know, I became familiar with hedgerow farms. I was, uh, I got to meet the the legendary conservationist, John Anderson, who basically, uh, after having a career at UC Davis as, as a veterinarian, went on to found hedgerow farms and essentially to figure out how to grow out this native seed, you know, this source identified native seed for habitat restoration projects. Really an amazing guy that was able to sort of figure this out, you know, after being a veterinarian. So um, when the job of general manager for Hedgerow Farms came up, I, I applied for that and, and got that position. And I spent the next four plus years as the general manager of Hedgerow Farms.
0: So essentially Hedgerow Farms was doing something very similar to what you are now doing with heritage growers.
1: That's correct. Yeah, yeah, very similar.
0: So talk about the transition from Hedgerow and their work to what you are doing now and some of the the, the differences, because uh, I think part of that has to do with heritage growers being a venture of River Partners. And some listeners will remember that we interviewed River Partners back in 2017 and had a conversation about this nonprofit organization. Working to restore specifically, you know, riparian habitat corridors on you know small-ish large private land, but also very large public space sites designated for either mitigation or restoration or preservation.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yes, you hit that exactly right, Jennifer. And that uh, River Partners is a nonprofit organization and uh, essentially what they do is restore large-scale riparian habitat areas you know i I think that river partners has restored something like 18 or 19,000 acres of riparian habitat over the last 25 years or so a significant portion of the riparian habitat that's present in the central valley has been is present because river partners did the habitat restoration and so river partners um over all these years would Use either wildland-collected seed for their habitat restoration, or they would buy that seed commercially. But it was always their dream to be able to have their own native seed venture, so that they would be able to have more control of the seed that was produced, the the ecotypes or the areas that the seed originally came from, the source-identified seed, the type of species, uh, the amount of material that was available, those kinds of things, and so. Um, I moved over to River Partners, and then from there, we started Heritage Growers.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I love about this is, and and there is absolutely nothing wrong with a commercial endeavor, but to have the seed source correlated with a nonprofit restoration group means that you have the profits going back into the actual work itself. And there's some beautiful elegance in this, as well as... The hope, at very least, that the mission is tied to the ideal rather than the profit and loss statement.
1: Yeah, that's it's a very strong appeal. The, the mission for for River Partners and now Heritage Growers is to restore habitat for the benefit of people and the environment. That's the goal. Yeah, for me, that's really important. That really is a, a strong message. Like we're, we're doing this work specifically to restore habitat at scale.
0: And as we know, restoring habitat at scale is an urgent undertaking in these times. And we have, um, this is, I think, the sixth episode in a series on this idea of, you know, couched in the idea of the 30 by 30 initiative. But of course, it's been this kind of large scale restoration has been happening far longer than somebody codified the idea of 30 by 30. And it will continue much longer than 2030. But one of the important little articulated joints in this work is that time lapse between when a project i mean you you conceive if you if you can try and put your head around 18,000 acres of riparian corridor being restored these last 25 30 years under river partners that is a lot of ground area in one of the richest environmental types in our region here in northern california or central california and we're already a biodiversity hotspot. So the complexity of even one acre is phenomenal. And you can't all of a sudden turn to look for the seed that you need for these restoration projects at the time that you need it. You need to have forethought that need by years. So talk to us about this process, which is really kind of hard to put my head around, Pat. but. How you are approaching it, especially in the face of this significantly increased demand for appropriate and ecologically valuable, you know, appropriate seed for each of these spaces in this exact time, Pat, because this is complicated stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know you hit the nail on the head there. There is a there's a a. a a gap between when seed is needed and when it's produced. Uh, and, it, and it can take several years to be able to get up to the point where you can produce this seed at scale. And so uh, it's a process that involves going out to wildland uh, seed areas, wildland areas to collect that the original stock seed. You have to test that seed. Uh, uh, based upon the test of that seed, you figure out the number of live seeds that are present. And then from there, can figure out if you need to grow that out as plugs or uh, directly into the field and sometimes you have to do this several times in order to get to the point where you have enough stock seed that's that original seed to be able to grow this thing out at scale right so um it is a it is a a long and complicated process in order to get to that point so so we're, we're doing everything we possibly can to try and uh Grow this material out as fast as we possibly can. So we we have uh, we're doing a lot of uh, stock seed collections that we're doing in order to get this material out. Um, we're trying new species. We're trying new ecotypes. Uh, we're doing this as quickly and as fast as we possibly can. You know, uh, one of the projects that we're working on right now is the the Klamath River dams removal project. I think you're aware of that project. Uh, so that's a project where we're growing out native seed for the restoration of that area after those dams are removed. We're also uh, cleaning some of the seed for uh, for that organization, for that project. Uh, so that seed becomes available so that we can grow out plugs. Uh, we're, we're specifically cleaning seed for milkweed. Uh, milkweed, as you, as you know, is is the uh, hose plant for the monarch butterfly. And so we're, we're doing that. That material will then, come out and and be used to grow out plugs, small plants that will then be planted out in the field to provide habitat for monarch butterflies. So we're doing this in all kinds of different ways for all kinds of different state and federal and local agencies, as well as nonprofits and the private industry to to try and develop these seeds and this plant material as quickly as we possibly can to meet what what is a, a gigantic upcoming demand for seeds and plants for large scale conservation.
0: So so you are collecting stock seed and when you are doing that, you're out in the field collecting from wild populations. Is there a you know whether that's milkweed or or oak or or baccarus or poppies or tritalea, whatever it might be, maybe walk us through the process of one site. Like you have someone reach out to you and say, we would, you know, or River Partners gets a job and they say, we would like to restore this five acres of riparian corridor. What happens from that moment? And maybe can you use an example so that we have like a place and and a plant palette that you can use the names of?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so- uh, So one of the projects that we're working on at Heritage Growers with River Partners, of course, is a habitat restoration project on Battle Creek, where uh, it meets the Sacramento River. It's a a site called Rancho Brisco, and it's land that's owned by the Bureau of Land Management, BLM. And as part of that project, what we're doing is we're going out and we're collecting the wildland stock seed for, for those areas so that we can then take that material, amplify that, grow that out so that we can take, you know, the 10 pounds of seed that we collected from 10 different species and turn that into a thousand pounds. And so then use that material that can then be used out for the habitat restoration. So uh, yeah. And and that's generally how it works. You know, you have to go out to these wildland areas. You have to identify uh, locations where you can collect the material. You have to also monitor that material very carefully because, uh, that that stock seed uh, it 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 ripens at different times, and it's really important that you monitor that the material for ripeness, so that you don't collect the the seed before it's not ripe. Because if it's if it's not ripe enough, it's going to have low germination. But if you wait too long, you could lose all of that seed. So you have to basically go out and monitor for ripeness, and go out and collect that material at the right time. However there are some species where the seed doesn't all ripen at the same time. Mm. And, the, and milkweed is a perfect example of that, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So you end up having to go out and, and do multiple collections with that. Mm. And you take that material, um, you clean it, and then you t- send that out for testing to see the number of viable seeds that you have, basically the number of live seeds that are present. And based upon the number of live seeds that are present, you then develop a strategy for how you're gonna amplify that seed. So if you have significant numbers of seeds, you know, in the order of around 600,000 live seeds per acre, then you would directly sow that material into the field. But if you have limited amounts of stock seed, which is often the case when you're starting, you have to first grow that material out into plugs and then plant, plant those plugs out into the field. And, and as you can imagine, it takes around 25,000 plugs per acre. To be wow. able to, uh yeah, so it's-, it's a,
0: Of any one plant.
1: Of any one plant, yeah.
0: So like when you are looking at an acre on this BLM land, about how many different species are you working with in that one project?
1: Well, um, it's a bit of an iterative process, if you okay. will. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be based upon the, the stock seed that's available, but it'll probably end up being- perhaps a dozen different species that we're going to end up growing out for for the BLM for this project. It'll be a combination of native grasses and native wildflowers. And, and those areas will provide the understory for the, the riparian habitat restoration that will occur on this project.
0: Do you work with all layers of an ecosystem?
1: Yeah, so so primarily the, the herbaceous vegetation, the native grasses and, and flowering plants. Um usually if you're trying to establish woody vegetation or at least a lot of woody vegetation, it's it's grown out in the container stock and mm-hmm. then planted out in the field. Okay. But that that being said, uh you mentioned geophytes. You know, we are doing some work with geophytes. Uh we uh we're doing some work with the Xirce Society, the invertebrate conservation mm-hmm. folks that are working so hard on trying to help the monarch butterfly recover. And so for example, we're working uh with a species uh dicolostoma capitatum. I think it's a uh, blue dicks. Blue dicks, the, yep. Is the common name of that, yep. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out first we're trying to figure out how to best germinate that seed. But but ultimately we're trying to figure out how can we produce the bulbs that are part of that right to to be able to plant those out in the field because it turns out that this is a really good nectar plant for Monarch butterflies, so monarch butterflies, we we hear a lot about milkweed and the importance of milkweed for reproduction, but they also need nectar plants. That's a really important part of monarch butterfly survival because they need that that nectar to be able to fuel those long migratory journeys that they make. So we're working on both establishing milkweed, but also those nectar species that are so important as well. And, and, And blue dicks is an example of that.
0: Right. And that whole suite of the tritoleas, brodeas, dicklistemmas, you know, are are they are incredibly uh, beneficial, especially as they are staggered in their bloom across the, the spring for all all manner of the hummingbirds, the butterflies, the, the bees, um, and other insects as well, of course. So in order to produce a thousand, you know, you collect a hundred pounds I think you said or maybe you collect I I forget but then you have to amplify that to a thousand pounds of seed for the seed sown aspects of a restoration site what kind of space and labor do you need to grow out a thousand pounds of seed Pat like where are you growing all of these different seeds and how do you, like, what is the process from identifying what you need to grow to the growing, to the distributing, storing, and then distributing?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, You know, it it really depends. You know, there are different species that yield different pounds of seed, but I can tell you what we're doing right now at Heritage Growers. Uh, We have 156 acres that are in production. In fact, uh, tomorrow we will have completed planting those 156 acres, and we're going out about 80 different items as part of that. And so uh, those those items ha- have they're varying degrees of the size of the of the fields. Some are only as small as a tenth of an acre. Mm. In other ca- cases, we have more than 10 acres of an individual item. So it so it really depends upon Uh, The species, the stock seed that's available, that's that's part of that. So, um, you know, it's really important. You mentioned biodiversity before. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really important that we produce a variety of species to provide that important biodiversity, because it's so important to provide high value habitat. Right. We know that in these habitat restoration projects, the more native species that we can introduce into these sites, the higher the habitat values. So we're both trying to, to grow out uh, those workhorse species, we call those, those species that are known to perform well in habitat restoration projects because those are really important. We want to use those. Extensively.
0: Can you give us some examples of those? Um, sure, yeah.
1: Uh, so for example, in riparian restoration projects, um, there's a species called uh, creeping wild rye. Um, that's one of the most successful species of native grasses that you can produce. It, it, it forms these very dense stands of high value habitat. Um, So that's one that we use extensively because we know it works very well. Uh, Other things like um, purple needle grass, the state uh, grass from California, that's another workhorse species. Uh, Other native grasses like um, meadow barley is one that works very well in habitat restoration. So, So there are a number of different species that we know work very well. We try to use those extensively in projects, but we also wanna make sure that we have other uh, species that maybe don't work so well, but they will provide, they will introduce some new material into these sites uh, to, to again, work towards providing better biodiversity.
0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Pat Reynolds is a career restoration ecologist and the general manager of Heritage Growers, a source-identified restoration seed and plant growing and supply company. We'll be back for more with Pat. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again, and as I write this, and we are leaning into that one last long weekend of spring moving toward true summer, I am looking forward to a summer of some time off. Well, kind of. I'll be meeting up with you all here each week as usual, but I have closed my calendar to speaking engagements for June, July, and most of August. It's summer. It's our second and strongest dormant season here in the dry heat of Northern California, and it's time for a little break for me. I look forward to kicking off my book tour for what we sow in late summer. I look forward to meeting many of you in your places, in Maine, in Ohio, in New York, in Oregon, and in California and beyond. I'd love to meet you and say hi if you're near any of my upcoming events. To find out more, you can always check out the list as it evolves each week. It's all there at cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. But until then, late summer, happy summer vacation to all of you. May you get to be in your garden. May you get to read some good books there. Play with your favorite plants. Maybe swim in some clear, cold water. Maybe enjoy some epic starry nights. Maybe take long naps, hear birdsong, watch fireflies, and don't forget to smell the roses. Pat Reynolds is a career restoration ecologist and the general manager of Heritage Growers, a source-identified restoration seed and plant growing company. As we come back to our conversation with Pat, he is describing the process and plants of one of the restoration projects Heritage Growers has worked on recently.
1: So we're working on a project uh, right now. It's uh, the Oroville Wildlife Area Project. It's a restoration project on the Feather River. And with that project, we've been going out and growing out wildland seeds for that, right? And so, so one of the workhorse species that we're using for that is blue wild rye, Elemis glaucus, a species that does very well on habitat restoration sites. But we're also trying to grow out some other things. Like one of the things that I'm pretty excited about is uh, giant, uh, blazing star, Menzilia, mm, mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, But as far as I know, that's never been grown out at scale. And so uh, we essentially went out and we uh, took some of the seed that we had collected last year in our first year at Heritage Growers. We grew that out into the demo garden. We showed that you could produce this material agriculturally. And now we're going and we're increasing that here this year. And so that would be an example of a, a more specialty item that's going to add that biodiversity to these restoration projects. So we we have the blue wild rise, but we also have the blazing stars to, to allow us to provide high value habitat.
0: Right. And when you use the term high value habitat, what does that mean?
1: Uh, it, it means a few things. Um, so one of the important parts about, particularly for riparian habitat, is you want to have a habitat that's structurally diverse. It's an area that will have uh, an understory, a midstory, and an overstory. You know that, mm-hmm. that the structure in and of itself provides high value habitat so you can imagine, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be a suite of species that are going to utilize each of those layers, if you will, as part of that. Yeah. but you also want to make sure that it's biologically diverse right that you've got lots of different plant species that are present because those plant species are also going to attract a lot of different animal species. But also you wanna make sure that it functions properly. So one of the big things that River Partners does is it creates new floodplain habitat, right? There were areas across the Sacramento Valley that would flood year after year. And as we know, uh, through decades of of work, basically a lot of levees were were developed along the Sacramento River and they've, they've cut off the flood flows to these adjacent floodplains. And so some of the work of River Partners includes reintroducing flood flows into these areas that were previous floodplains and now we're reconnecting these floodplains back to the river and that's really important Mm -hmm. too that's a really important uh, ecological function because uh, that brings in water that's going to help to improve groundwater that's out there it's going to improve the dynamics you know the the basically making these sites very uh dynamic and unpredictable and heterogeneous if you will we know that mm-hmm. uh, these floodplains also provide really important habitat for juvenile fish like salmon and yeah. steelhead right the, the mm-hmm. shallow water habitats that are not present in the main stem of the Sacramento River are present in these newly created floodplains these are the areas where the the insects really they really thrive where there's lots and lots of food for these fish and so, so there's lots of reasons why we want to make sure that these habitat restoration projects also function properly. And for river partners, it's it's the reconnection the the, the creation, the recreation of these floodplains that then provide habitat, riparian habitat, you know, riparian forest yeah. areas of you know complex habitat of trees and shrubs and grasses and forbs. Yeah, it's
0: exciting. And you mentioned several, you know, the agricultural and human development of levees to stem flooding so that you could plant more or you could build more and and how that disrupted the health of a river and all of its related lives, including fish and plants and birds. And, and to see those systems recreated and reconnected uh, also by human endeavor, it just seems like such a hopeful act in these times. To me, Pat, yeah.
1: Yeah, me too. It, it, it really does uh, give me a lot of hope that we're able to now kind of rectify some of the mistakes perhaps that we've made in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. You know the other thing about, yeah. I should mention too about, uh, you know, creating, you know, or restoring floodplain habitat is that it also takes pressure off of flooding uh, in, in other locations, right? So if we can let the, mm-hmm. take the straight jacket off of the river and allow it to flood, then these historic floodplains, it's going to it's going to take some of the pressure off of downstream cities, for example. So it has this other flood control benefit as well. So a lot. Lots of reasons right. By-
0: and it stores more water in the landscape. And I mean, there's just so many benefits that we we didn't understand. And we now have a better understanding of. And, you know, we have more to learn, but uh, the, the trying counts for a lot. So you mentioned your display garden, which makes me want to ask you to describe for listeners all of the spaces you are now growing in, and um, what where they are located, and and what they look like, and what purposes each of the the sites is serving uh, for the larger work of heritage growers.
1: Yeah, so a, a really important part of the process of growing out the seed at scale is to do trials, right? So our, our demonstration garden is an area that we we trial new species, things that have never been tried before. We were talking about the blazing star, for example. That's something that we learned about in our demonstration garden. You know, and, and, and uh, last year we had about 140 different items within our demonstration garden. And then we went out on a weekly basis and we collected data on things like, when does that material, when does these individual materials germinate? When do they set seed? when do they flower those kinds of things that that then sort of informs the habitat restoration approach that we you know a lot of what we learned last year we're now applying to what we're doing this year uh, we also use that demonstration garden as the source of our seed for our, our nursery program so what we do is uh at heritage growers we we grow out tens of thousands of plants uh, in the plug form these very small high quality plants that can be used to supplement areas where perhaps uh, seed doesn't establish so well there, there are some species that that don't do that well from seed and so um, using plugs is a, is a great way to, to get those materials established within these sites It adds that important biodiversity um, that we couldn't otherwise do if we were strictly planting seed
0: yeah yeah describe for me a restoration project that you've grown for and maybe been involved in from the consulting to to the the planting out and you know then beginning to evaluate how it's going describe one that you find to be particularly beautiful and fills you with a lot of of happiness that it was successful in the full cycle of seeing the degradation establishing the restoration plan growing the seeds and then seeing a grassland full of wildflowers pat
1: yeah yeah well you know you know i think i might want to describe a uh, river partner's signature project uh which is called dos rios uh mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's the area where the the san joaquin river beats the tuolumne river uh in the san joaquin valley and uh that was a, a 1,600 acre. Um, cornfield, essentially. And um, that's an area that uh, River Partners has successfully restored uh, to a very high value habitat. It's an area where uh, uh, the understory, the the native grasses, the native forbs in some locations are 100% of the vegetation that's present. And that's really, really hard to find, right? Yeah, really hard. Yeah. yeah. So, so most of these habitat restoration projects are a combination of native vegetation and and weeds, right? And, and in this particular case, um, you know, River Partners was able to restore this 1600 acres uh, and be able to produce this incredible understory. And now Dos Rios actually is going to become uh, California's first state park in the last 13 years. The the first one in 13 years. Yeah. it's And it's going to be a it's going to be an example of how you can successfully restore habitat at scale. So it's pretty exciting. Um, so that that's a that's a great example in my mind of a, of a successfully restored habitat that went from agricultural production to today's incredible riparian habitat.
0: Yeah, when you are looking forward, especially under the pressures of the the hopes and work of the thirty by thirty endeavors. What do you see as our greatest challenges, Pat, especially at the seed growing for scale and some of the cautions you're trying to keep in mind as you do your part of this work?
1: Yeah, so so the thing about 30 by 30 is that uh, we could potentially be having to restore millions of acres of habitat, right? Literally millions of acres. And you know, right now we don't have the, the seed that's available the appropriate seed that's available for these for these areas. You know, we, we wanna make sure that we're using seed that originally came from the region, you know, the source identified material. We wanna use the seed that came from the region and use that seed back within these habitat restoration areas. And although there is native seed that's available, it's not always necessarily available in specific regions. And so, part of the challenge is to get more of these ecotypes this source identified material within these regional areas so that we can put back that material back into these sites so we can maintain those local genetics so that this vegetation is going to survive and persist in the long term so so i think that's the biggest challenge is is to try to to scale up and to scale up enough that we also provide regionally appropriate plant material
0: so those are the challenges. What are your greatest joys in this work, Pat?
1: Yeah, so the the, the greatest joy for me in doing this work has been um, all of the support that we've gotten at Heritage Growers. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm uh, you know, with this idea of us as a nonprofit organization growing out this plant material at scale. So for me, that's been the, the most joyful part of this whole thing has been um just all the the appreciation that we've seen from so many individuals and groups and and the support that they've given us uh, for this process.
0: And I think, you know, from what you and I have talked about in the past, one of the things that also seem to be a recurring um source of pride for you and and important um, calling and mandate for you as well is the mentoring of other people coming up in this work and other endeavors who are maybe adjacent to you and seeing them not so much as competitors, but as collaborators in this network of people working towards this same vision.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it uh, that's, that's definitely been a, a great part of this whole thing is the the partnerships and the collaborations that we've been doing along the way and you know in our ability to share this knowledge you know it's a uh there are very few people that know how to grow out this this these seeds and these plants at scale and so we're trying to share this knowledge so that we can you know meet the demands we can help other folks learn how to do this work so we can meet the demands of this large-scale conservation so you know um i give a lot of uh talks on you know habitat gardening and the what we're doing here at heritage growers to try to grow out this material. You know, having things like uh, field trips to, to show people what we're doing all of that has really been beneficial and, and some of the grants that we're working on right now. Uh, they incorporate educational processes as part of it right, so not only are we going to you know, grow out the plant material, but we're also going to document that process and we're going to bring people out to show them what we're doing. So hopefully they can learn and basically set up more heritage growers in, in other areas in California.
0: Yeah. And with that in mind, if you had three plants or three plant families, you personally would not want to live without or garden without or restore without, what would those be, Pat?
1: Well of course it, it always has to start with the valley oak. You know the valley oak of course is the is the signature native tree of the central valley of California. Yeah. You know the valley oak of course provides really high habitat values. It uh it essentially um, supports an abundance and a diversity of insects and so but I when I talk to folks about sort of developing their habitat gardens, you know I say if you had to do one action, I say plant a valley oak. So yeah. So so to me, valley oak is is, is number one. But other species that I I really enjoy, um, sunflowers. uh, There's a native sunflower, a Bolander sunflower that I really like. Um, You know, it it flowers in the summertime and it's full of these longhorn native, native bees, these longhorn bees that, you know, spend their whole day foraging, you know, in these sunflowers. But then at nighttime, the males will then congregate and sleep together on other native plants that I have in my garden. You know, <laughs> uh, it's such a joy. It really yeah. is. <laughs> uh Robin Thorpe, the, the late Robin Thorpe yeah. called that boy's night out, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. Yeah. It's his description of that. Yeah. And then if I had to pick a third, um, I would probably say that uh chick lupin is probably my mm. third favorite. Um, that's that yellow lupin, right? Lupinus microcarpus densiflorus. Uh it, it grows very well it's a very cheery plant it uh, provides a lot of great habitat for bees in particular um, it also produces a lot of seed right which is great because you know i i i collect that seed and i give it to my neighbors so they can grow their own lupins as well and improve the habitat values here right here in my neighborhood so i think those three are probably my three favorites
0: Well, thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a joy to speak with you. And I so appreciate uh, the whole symphony of things you are doing to help grow our world better, Pat.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure.
0: Reynolds is the General Manager of Heritage Growers' Native Seed and Plant Supply. He's a restoration ecologist with more than 30 years of professional experience in the design, implementation, and monitoring of habitat restoration projects, including the effective use of native seed. He is the Director of River Partners' Native Seed and Plant Program, the former General Manager of Hedrow Farms, and a past Associate Restoration Ecologist at HT Harvey and Associates. Between them, heritage growers and river partners and their networks of restoration, ecology, and seed supply across California and beyond are a fabulous model of other such collaborations and networks across the country. These networks are necessary to large scale and well-designed ecosystem and habitat restoration success. Speaking of Plants in Place, we'll be back next week when we again continue our multi-part seed series, this time in conversation with three of the plant and seed folks from the Theodore Payne Foundation in Los Angeles County. The Theodore Payne Foundation's native plant and seed conservation, education, and restoration work serves their wider community of home gardeners, public projects, and scientific community. It's great growing. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance for your support. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and through support from the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX. Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Oh, 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 oh,
1: I love you